I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Susanna Cahalan talks about the undercover mission that changed our understanding of madness in her new book, The Great Pretender. Susanna Cahalan is the award-winning New York Times best-selling author of Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness, a memoir about her struggle with a rare autoimmune disease of the brain, which was later made into a film by Netflix. And Susanna's latest book, The Great Pretender, The Uncover Mission That Changed Our Understanding of Madness, is what we're going to be talking about today. Susanna, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. So, as I said, before we talk about The Great Pretender, let's just put it into some context and remind us of of the events of your previous book, Brain on Fire. What happened? So, you know, in essence, I was um, 24 years old. I was working at a kind of tabloidy newspaper in New York City. And I basically had a brush with serious mental illness. I mean, I I had these symptoms of what um, would later be misdiagnosed as schizoaffective disorder. It started with a, a bit of kind of depression, a bit of kind of feeling lost, and then it quickly escalated. And I started to exhibit um, kind of manic symptoms. I would kind of go back and forth between uh, extreme mania and then um, very, very deep depression in very short moments. I'm talking kind of se- within minutes. And uh, after that, I uh, had my first in a series of seizures, which ultimately got me hospitalized. And um, I spent a month at NYU Medical Center in uh, New York City. And there, uh, throughout a, you know various diagnoses, including bipolar disorder and then ultimately schizoaffective disorder, I was ultimately diagnosed with um, the real thing that, was, uh, that, that I had, which was autoimmune encephalitis. The full term is anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis, uh, which is a mouthful. <laughs> but um, in essence, it's a, a brain illness um, where your, your immune system begins to target and attack the NMDA receptors in the brain, um, which are located all over the brain, but in high concentrations and kind of learning memory and behavioral centers of the brain. And so I was, I was kind of a very classic example of that. And I wrote Brain on Fire 
with the kind of mission, like a kind of two-pronged mission, I wanted to, A, I kind of wanted to understand what had happened to me. There were a lot of jargony kind of phrases thrown at me, including NMDA receptor, you know, lymphocytes, and, you know, just, you know, parts of the brain. I had no idea what an antibody was. And so this was, this allowed me to understand what had happened. And it also allowed me to spread the word about this condition, which at the time was, was very rare and unknown. I was, I was the 217th person to be diagnosed with the condition. And that was brain on fire. And the outcome of that was extraordinary and something that I did not expect. You know, there was a kind of outpouring of people um, all over the world uh, who connected with my story in very surprising ways, really. And that's obviously going to be critical to, to the, the, you know, the genesis of this next book. But just to, just to park that for a moment, I just want to talk about also what it was like to see that period of your life made it to a film oh, yeah bizarre um i would describe it as out of body literally <laughs> the condition actually kind of robs you of your memory i have very few reliable memories from the time that i was in the hospital i was in there it was in a ho- in the hospital for a month and all i remember really are hallucinations and kind of paranoid thoughts i mean i very few real things so then to see what i had written about that time because i really had to kind of use a reporter's eye to recreate that and I, you know being trained as a reporter was very helpful and so i wrote about a time that i didn't remember and then someone took what i had written <laughs> and made it into a movie it was there were so many degrees of separation yet there i was it, it was just it was so bizarre and i remember um when it came out on netflix Netflix just kind of plays sometimes if you let it go, you know, the kind of trailer for whatever you're you're looking at. And at one point, Brain on Fire was like one of the top kind of watched movies. And it just kind of played automatically in my apartment. And my, my husband and I kind of got freaked out because it started with, my name is Susanna Cahalan. <laughs> it was just a strange, very odd uh, sensation of hearing your name come out of someone's mouth and in a movie. It, it, the whole thing was very odd. And so going back to the the book of Brain on Fire, so you've written this book and now obviously the book is published and you have to go out and do that, you know, publicity thing and you're doing book tours and speaking. And as you've you've already hinted at, you start to also receive letters. I want to talk about the reception of the book. What did people, you know, what happened? Well, you know, it, there was kind of, there were layers. Um, the first layer was, you know, amazing. Uh, you know, people writing to me, who had gotten diagnoses because of my book or doctors or nurses writing to me that they had learned about the condition and then diagnosed one of their patients based on my book. So that was amazing, um, that reaction. But, you know, in even kind of a larger size pool of responses were people who they themselves who were struggling with, you know, psychosis or serious symptoms of mental illness or their family members and, and looking for answers and feeling neglected or stymied or completely ignored by, and in some cases abused. I got a lot of very frightening, very, you know, upsetting emails from people who had terrible stories of their treatment within, you know, psychiatric care. And this prompted me to start thinking about my own condition very differently. And there was one email in particular from a father of a 30-something-year-old man who has struggled with serious mental illness almost all of his adult life. And he read my story, Brain on Fire, and he found a lot of uh, he found a lot to be excited about, and he f- he felt kind of seen in a way and supported. But then he heard me talk about the book in an interview, and I 
made this kind of the separation between what had happened to me, which I was calling neurological or physical, and what was what happens to people with, you know, say a diagnosis of schizophrenia like his son, which I had called kind of, you know, psychological, mental, you know. And he said, why are you making this dis- distinction? Isn't, you know, uh, it, doesn't this all reside in the brain? You know, why, well, how are you so different from my son? You know, the big difference obviously was that, they had found the cause of my illness and that was curable. But it started to, I started to ask myself, like, what is mental illness? And, you know, what, what, how does my condition fit in with that history? And um, that prompted me to start really kind of reexamining the kind of ways that I've been framing it in my own head. Because, you know, and it, when I first got out of the hospital, I was very severely impaired. So I didn't have a lot of bandwidth to figure out what had happened to me. And as I started to recover, I learned more. And I remember in that in those hazy stages when I was recovering, I was very, you know, I felt almost ashamed of the psychosis. And I felt ashamed of what had happened to me. Hallucinations, delusions, these things are very frightening. And they were things that I believed to be true that were not. And it was, you know, this idea that I was hanging on by this thin thread and and that I just let go of my sense of reality and it happened so quickly and easily was terrifying to me. And I didn't want to share that with the world. But as I started to come out of this and started to research and learn more about the condition, I felt far more comfortable saying, yes, I, ha- I had these, um, you know, delusions and psychosis, but they were caused by this very concrete thing that, you know, it was antibody that targeted my brain. And, and I felt that there was, um, I had built this kind of wall of a separation between my own condition, which I was terming again, neurological, and those people who were st- struggling with mental illness. And I felt, and I didn't have any stigma. Um, attached to what I had gone through because I had these neurological causes. And I didn't realize I was doing that until that email and until emails like it. And at that point, that kind of prompted me to start questioning many of the um, conclusions that I felt I had come to inadvertently, in a way, with Brain on Fire. Of course, there's also a certain amount of, I guess, luck, privilege maybe, but like a certain set of circumstances that meant that you were diagnosed in time with that neurological condition when that might not have happened and indeed in the book you talk about a woman who you describe as sort of your mirror image who wasn't as lucky absolutely and i you know there are so many sets of of circumstances that led me you know my age uh, my race, the fact that I had insurance coverage, the fact that I lived in New York City and had access to top quality medical care. I mean, all those things led me to where I, and, you know, the advocacy of my parents. And this, it was a kind of secret sauce of conditions that led me to a diagnosis. And it prompted me also to think how many people aren't getting the diagnosis, which was a huge impetus uh, from the beginning of getting the word out about this disease. But along the way, well, I did a talk at a psychiatric hospital in North Carolina. Uh, and there, I learned about a young woman who had been in and out of the hospital for two years and was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And after my talk there, and I, you know, kind of just presented my case and talked about what it was like, you know, and and kind of just to, again, share the knowledge with the staff. Two weeks after that talk, I learned that this young woman who they suspected maybe of having what I had um, actually did have autoimmune encephalitis. And the big difference between us, unfortunately, was that I was misdiagnosed for only one month. And she was misdiagnosed for two years. And the assault on her brain was just too much. And um, one doctor said that she would never fully recover and that she would operate the rest of her life, um, in his words, as a permanent child. That enraged me and 
also just I thought, how are we able to get this so wrong? And what does it mean to have schizophrenia if we can get this so wrong? And what does it mean about our diagnostic system? Um, What does it mean about psychiatry? And um, that was another kind of galvanizing force that started to push me to kind of ask those kind of questions in light of Brain on Fire. And so the book, The Great Pretender, is the story of your investigation, particularly into one man, David Rosahan, and his seminal study um, in Stanford in the 1970s on being sane in insane places. Tell me about how you first... I mean, not just how you first heard of this study, because it is a famous study, but how you first thought there was a story here. So, you know, I actually talked about this mirror image woman um, who I'd become kind of fixated on, as you can understand, to two uh, neuroscientists uh, who study, one of them studies the NMDA receptor and one of them studies schizophrenia. And I was talking about this and one of them brought up the study and said, you know, you're kind of a modern day pseudo patient. And I kind of vaguely had heard about this famous study um, in the past, but I I didn't quite know. So I remember I went um, that night and read it. And the study opens with, I mean, the study is so beautifully written and so evocative and fascinating. I was immediately taken in. I mean, the opening line is, you know, if sanity and insanity exist, how shall we know them? Uh, Those kind of words are not the kind of tone or sentence structure you would imagine in from an academic journal like science. It read like a novel. And I thought, what is the story here? And so, you know, the story is that a man named David Rosenhan, a Stanford, at the time he was Swarthmore professor, but he's uh, ultimately was a Stanford professor. He and seven other what he called pseudo patients went undercover in psychiatric hospitals around the country. And um, they basically just presented with one symptom. They said they heard a voice that says thud, empty or hollow. And they use this because it wasn't a symptom that was very commonly reported. In fact, Rosenhan wrote that those symptoms were never reported in the literature. And so he wanted to use those one symptom and then maintain the integrity of everyone's biography. So you would have that symptom, but otherwise you would just be the same person with perhaps a few uh, biographical changes. And the result was that all eight of these volunteers were misdiagnosed with serious mental illness. And once they got the label and most of them were diagnosed with schizophrenia. Once they got that label, everything they did in the hospital was kind of proof of their mental illness. So at one point, they were taking notes on the ward, and um, that showed up in their medical records as writing behavior. And this idea of, of kind of context and its nature on diagnosis, which was so flawed, it seemed so flawed and arbitrary, very much appealed to me, as you can imagine, because I thought psychiatry was getting it wrong then, and it seems to be still be getting it wrong um, in my kind of specific case. Ironically, you talk about how other patients weren't necessarily fooled and would sort of question these people. I'm glad you focused. I, I, that's one of my favorite parts. There are a few favorite parts of the study. And one of them is that uh, I think he has specific numbers, but a great percentage of the fellow uh, patients in one of the hospitals that he went to or one of the pseudo patients went to actually identified them as um, a faker. 
And at one point, one fellow patient came up to the to the pseudo patient and said, you're not a real patient. You're an undercover reporter or an investigator checking up on the hospital. Um, and that I think at the time uh, when this study came out, it had a huge effect. I mean, it, I mean, the media went wild specifically with this study. They, they seem to love it. And a lot of the headlines were, you know, interestingly, they called the other patients inmates, um, which kind of shows you the kind of prejudice against you know, patients. Um, but they said inmates can't tell the difference, you know, can tell the difference. Doctors can't. That was that was a big takeaway from the paper people liked. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Susanna Cahalan. We're talking about her new book, The Great Pretender, the undercover mission that changed our understanding of madness. And Susanna, before we before we carry on talking about the study, let's contextualise it a bit and say this is it's the early 70s yes. when this happens. Obviously, we're talking about America here. And so people will immediately think, I guess, of, you know, late 60s, early 70s, one flew over the cuckoo's nest... Um, what would a a mental health facility have been like at this time? In a way, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest got it right in terms of the kind of drab, depressing atmosphere, the oppressive nature of, of the institution. You know, these were outlined um, not only in kind of popular culture, like One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest and a movie like Snake Pit, but they were also um, very much targeted in, in academic journals. Um, there's a sociologist named Irving Goffman who wrote um, a, a book called Asylums that 
describe institutions as basically prisons. And so this was the prevailing notion at the time, not only within academic circles, but in the lay public. And it was an accurate uh, description. And uh, many of these places were overcrowded and underfunded. They were warehousing many, many people. And there were definitely there was rampant abuse at the time. And this is not the first time that something like this study had been done. You talk, I mean, you, you, you give a bit of the sort of history of of American psychiatry and, and sort of mental health. And, and you talk about a woman called Nellie Bly, who basically did a similar yeah. thing r- roughly 100 years before. Yes, yes. In, in the late 1800s, Nellie Bly went undercover in Blackwell's Island, one of the most notorious institutions uh, in the country at the time. In fact, um, Dickens went to the islands and kind of immediately wanted off. It was very disturbing. There you had, you know, serious overcrowding. You had complete neglect and you had, uh, you know, gross abuse to the point where Nellie actually heard stories about a woman who was beaten to death during the time that she was there. So this was a, a place where the minute you were put on that island, you were discarded by humanity. And the average length of stay during her time when she went undercover was about 10 to 20 years. So um, this was uh, an amazing um, feat of undercover reportage. She did it for a New York tabloid. And she stayed, I believe, um, 10 days undercover there until um, finally her newspaper actually had to send a lawyer to get her off and uh, off the island. And she ultimately wrote um, an expose on her experience, which led to um, some funding, but, you know, unfortunately not um, not as widespread of a change as you would have hoped. And so, again, go, you know, going 100 years further forward, you mentioned that uh, Rosenhan's study caught the sort of popular imagination at the time. And, it, you know, it was written about in the media. And was there criticism of the study at the time? Oh, there was, you know, virulent criticism, um, mainly by psychiatrists and very valid criticism, I might add. Um, there was one psychiatrist who studied genetics, a man named Seymour Ketty, who had a great point. They said, well, if I drank blood, you know, I, I drank something that was red that looked like blood and I started vomiting it in a hospital uh, in an emergency room, I, too, would be hospitalized. You know, the point, though, I would I, I would kind of argue with him is that um, it wasn't just that they were initially misdiagnosed. They were they continued to be misdiagnosed during their hospitalization. But, you know, people. People took on Rosenhan for his use of the words sanity and insanity. They took on his methodological kind of approaches. Anything that they could attack him on, they tried to. Um, but but none of them actually stuck. And I think that there were a few reasons why, you know, I think because it came from psychiatrists, people saw a lot of the kind of grumblings as sour grapes. And I think um, also the lay public, it was kind of confirming their biases and beliefs already about psychiatric hospitalizations and about psychiatry in general. So even though there was a lot of, um, in some cases, valid criticism. It didn't really hit the paper. And by 1980, it was taught in, I think, over 80% of psychology textbooks. So it was a very ingrained classic study, you know, just seven years after its publication. And in, in the sort of immediate aftermath, what impact does it have on the industry? What changes? Well, you know, it's fascinating. I, I knew... Um, that it had a huge effect on the growing deinstitutionalization movement. Uh, I knew that it was uh, a key anti-psychiatry text, you know, showing how inept the field was. But I, I didn't really know until I started to do my digging 
what a, what effect it had on actually the kind of biological push that was going on during that time that is kind of encapsulated by the creation of a document called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder, the DSM, which is considered a kind of Bible of American psychiatry. I, I found um, amazing treasure trove of letters between David Rosenhan and the architect of the DSM, a man named Robert Spitzer. And, I, you know, Spitzer wrote one of the most um, kind of biting and I love the I love the piece, but it's funny, it's droll, but it's 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 a hard it's a hard take on on Rosenhan's study, and he tried to kind of really wrestle it to the ground. And they had a back and forth exchange behind the scenes, and I only found out um, through interviewing Spitzer's wife, who was also uh, among the people who created the DSM and some various other players, that David Rosenhan's study was very much in the back of their minds why they were creating this kind of new diagnostic criteria um, for conditions like schizophrenia. And, you know, they would constantly ask themselves, could David Rosenhan and his group get past this kind of checklist? So it's kind of amazing when you think about this little study um, published in, 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 you know, one of the kind of most revered academic journals in the world. Yes. But still, a little study had this kind of outsized effect on the field. Well, let's let's talk about your research into this study then, because, of course, we've been talking so far as if, you know, this book is about this sort of famous study. But it's, it's much more than that. It's, <laughs> things aren't necessarily as they as they first appear. Yes. Yes. So, you know, I read that study in that hotel room that night after talking to those neuroscientists and I really connected and I saw so much of my own experiences in there. And I thought, I, I want to learn more about this. And, I, you know, I found, you know, online that there wasn't much written beyond the original nine pages in science. So that kind of incited a little bit of a curiosity, a journalistic curiosity in me. And so I decided I want to learn more. And so luckily, there was um, this kind of trove of documents in um, his very close friend's uh, possession. And among those documents, there was an unpublished book that David Rosenhan had written. Uh, and there was over well over 100 pages in that book. And it was on the pseudopatient experiment. And I later found out that he actually ha had gotten a contract with a major publisher to write these up. And he basically had a finished document but he never actually delivered the manuscript and the publisher ended up suing him actually for to recoup the advance. So that raised another kind of red flag. Why didn't he finish this book? It would have made him famous. It would have kind of cemented his role in this kind of, um, you know, this the kind of studies place in the history of, of psychology. So I, I, you know, that kind of raised some questions for me. And um, so at that point, I just wanted to kind of dig deeper and as I started to read the book and get access to other um, records, other questions started to emerge about Rosenhan himself. Uh, and, and the first of which was about his own hospitalization. Now, David Rosenhan was among the pseudopatients. He was one of the people who went undercover. And, you know, his book details the amazing things that happened to him while undercover uh, at Haverford State Hospital for nine days. You know, he, um, like Nellie Bly, he witnessed abuse. He, um, you know, experienced the boredom. He experienced the kind of um, the way that doctors are primed to see a pathology just because of a diagnosis. Uh, you know, at one point, Rosenhan is pacing in front of the cafeteria um, because he's bored and he's waiting for it to open. And their only thing to do all day is basically to eat. 
And uh, one of the staff members comes up to him and says, nerves? You know, they, they kind of interpreted his pacing as a sign of his, you know, mental dysfunction when in fact it was just sheer boredom. And, you know, there were there were kind of examples of the way that once he was um, misdiagnosed, he became, was seen as kind of a lesser, um, almost seen as a de-individualized person. He described it as another person. Anyway, I'm getting deep into the things I loved about them. <laughs> I, I keep tending to do that. I, I want to give Rosenhan the benefit of the doubt, and I think I did. And I think in many ways this is why it took six years to write this book. But as I started to dig into these files, questions emerged. And, and one of the big questions was when I, uh, when I found his medical record. That was when things started to really shift for me. Well, I'm also conscious of not giving away too much of, oh, of your journey. Um, <laughs> but I do want to say that, you know, okay, so you've got his papers, but unfortunately, yeah. like, Rosenhan is dead, so, you you, you know, right. you can't talk to him exactly. directly. However, something you could potentially do is talk to the other people that took part in the experiment. Exactly, exactly yes. Yeah, so that became, for me, even from the beginning, I knew I wanted to talk to the other pseudopatients and find out how did this study affect their lives? Why did they decide to do this in the first place? I mean, you know, as we talked about before, these were places that were notorious, you know, for places of abuse. So why would they have willingly put themselves on the line? They didn't even get, they didn't get an author credit. It was, you know, it was listed as by David Rosenhan. You know, they they were completely unknown and, and and they just did this. Why did why would they do this? So I, I started a quest and this that started in about 2014 and uh, I tried that became kind of my mission and it became an obsession. Um, initially, it, it all seemed like it was going to be easy. I found the first pseudo patient, a man named Bill Underwood, um, very easily. He is now in, he's retired, he's in Texas, and I flew out and I talked to him. And in many ways, his experience was like very much mirrored uh, in the same way that David Rosenhan's experience. He was misdiagnosed with schizophrenia. He spent seven days hospitalized um, at a place called Agnew State Hospital in California. He was dosed with Thorazine, and he actually didn't properly learn how to um, tongue the pill. So he took the took the medication by mistake. He was, you know, uh, completely ignored. He saw, you know, the food was terrible. The surroundings were depressing. Uh, you know, again, he, at one point he was mistaken for another patient and almost given insulin. I mean, there was some real gross neglect going on there too. Um, so in terms of the thesis of the paper, it matched up, but there were some inconsistencies that I found. Um, among them, I thought it was really strange that he was not properly prepped, you know, as I talked about with the Thorazine, but you know, they weren't really given any roadmap. He also did not collect any data why he was uh, hospitalized, which was very strange because he was a graduate student of David Rosenhan's. And if you think anyone would have been the one to do these kind of very specific data collection methods, you know, in the paper, there are, you know, average number of minutes that the psychiatrist spends on the ward that are down to the decimal point in terms of the spe specificity. If he wasn't collecting data, who was? Um, and then there were also other kind of strange inconsistencies with the, you know, in terms of David's notes or, uh, you know, they said that he was in for longer than he was. They had, a mis you know, mistakes about the number of patients um, in one in his notes. Um, Rosenhan had written that Bill Underwood was in a hospital with 8,000 patients when he was in a hospital with 1,000 patients. So there were kind of mistakes and problems that I found um, that I thought maybe meant that he was kind of sloppy. 
Through Bill, however, I heard about another patient, another participant, a man named Harry Lando, who uh, now is a psychology professor at um, the University of Minnesota. And um, uh, Harry Lando became the window that opened the whole thing up for me, I think. Okay, well, let's not say any further as to the direction that your investigation goes in. You know, however, people can, I'm sure, work out that we're basically saying that this this trial has like problems. You know, it's so funny because it's I find it very hard to talk about this study because obviously I have very conflicted feelings about it. As you can tell, I, there was so much of it that I thought was brilliant. And, you know, there's a part where he says that he he tells the hospital that he's going to send pseudo patients over a three month period and they report back that they found, you know, 47 possible pseudo patients, people they believe are pseudo patients. And then Rosenhan in the paper lays down the hammer and says, I didn't send one. You know, there are these beautiful flourishes in it and I'm such a fan. So the process of uncovering these issues was a real it was an education for me, but it was also really disappointing in a lot of ways. Well, this is how I wanted to finish, really. Just like one final question, which was like, you know, you do, you talk in the book about him dancing around the truth. And, uh, and I wanted to talk about, you know, what, you, what value you think there remains in this study. You no, know, I think there's a lot of value that remains in study. I mean, I think it can never be taken on face value again. I, I mean, I think that I don't I don't think that um, anyone teaching this study can do so without the documents that I found. However, there are, you know, the idea that doctors see patients through the prism of their diagnosis, that context informs our behavior and the way we view others. We view we as a society view psychiatric illness as somehow less legitimate than physical ones. These are takeaways from the paper that are sometimes forgotten, um, but I think are the real meat and heart of the paper that really stand up today and are, are still issues that we grapple with. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I hope that um, in the process of kind of unveiling some of the things that I found about the study, that those issues kind of are brought to the fore and discussed. That's my hope, at least. So I've been talking to Susanna Cahalan. We've been talking about her new book, The Great Pretender, the undercover mission that changed our understanding of madness it's out in the u.s already and is out this week from canongate in the uk Susanna, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it thank you so much for having me this episode of little atoms was produced and presented by me neil denny edited by sky redman and was first broadcast on resonance 104.4 fm little atoms is supported by 89 up and hosted by acast if you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.